The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the, um, the Advent season is officially over, right? And so we'll jump right back where we left off in 1 Peter. Uh, what we do at Sacred City Church, if you're new, we, we preach exegetically. That means we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible. And so we, we typically limit the topical sermon series. That way I don't get to you know, preach on my hobby horses all the time and you don't get bored with that or whatever. So we let God sort of determine what we're going to talk about. And so we go through books of the Bible and at this pace, we will finish the book of First Peter uh, at the end of January. And so if you're just joining us, you're kind of coming in at the tail end. Um, but to help you, if, if you want to kind of engage with us, I've written this little booklet um, to give you some context uh, to First Peter, why we're in this book, the significance of it today. You can actually pick this up. It's free over at the bookstore uh, in the hospitality room. I'd love for you to grab that. Or if you're interested, you can listen to previous sermons uh, online. If you go to uh, scmoline.com or if you go to the iTunes podcast store, search Sacred City Moline. You can find stuff there and catch up. Um, I don't know how many sermons we've had, but I think it's probably like over 25 at this point. So there's, there's actually been quite a bit. So you can catch up on that. Um, but I want to just give us a quick flyover as we jump back in. We've taken a four-week break, and so it would help us to kind of wa- remember why Peter wrote this book and the impact that it has made on the church. Um, and so to do that, we have to understand the times that Peter was writing in. Now, in the first century Christians, they were being bullied uh, for being different. Um, no matter what century you're, you're in, bullying is not good, right? We know all about that. We're becoming more aware of the impact that bullying has on today's kids, especially. And the true, it's still true back then, right? The difficulty, the toll that it takes. Obviously, um, there's emotional uh, a toll that it takes, right? If, if your relationships are being severed, if you're being ostracized, cast out, rejected, that takes an emotional toll on you, right? At this point in the church, um, there, there hasn't been physical um, bullying happening, although persecution, physical persecution would come uh, a few years later. But there has been a big impact on the church, people who are living all in for Jesus. Um, as they profess faith, they live as Christians, they're experiencing a lot of difficulty within the culture. It's affecting their livelihood, that, that Christian business owners are being pushed out. The people no longer go to their stores because they're Christians, and so their, their livelihood declines. The government and society is set up in a way that is unfair and unfavorable for Christians. Um, the, the government, in, in a lot of ways, views, viewed Christians as anarchists, but Peter, in, in previous chapters, has sort of destroyed that, where, where Christians aren't there to rebel against the government and, and overthrow the government. No, uh, Peter 
Peter is suggesting that, that the Christians come underneath of government and honor them as the way that God intends. Um, and so as a whole, the culture itself, the mainstream culture, is hostile and demeaning towards Christians. And what Peter is doing here, he's writing in order to teach Christians how to thrive as God's chosen people in the midst of a hostile world which is why this book is particularly relevant for us today. If you haven't noticed, um, our culture has exited Christendom. Christendom is sort of the era when there was a lot of Christian values that were adopted by uh, mainstream culture at large. Um, you, 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 some people think that the United States was at one time a Christian country. It never really was. But there was a lot of influence that Christianity had on the culture at large. And what we're finding now is that our, our society, our culture, is growing less and less tolerable of Christians. They label us as, as bigots, intolerant, narrow-minded. We're prudes. right? And, and even I, in the Midwest, we don't really feel this too extremely. But if you go to the coasts, you'll see it a lot. Um, but, but something... A pretty important article popped up um, a couple weeks ago in the Des Moines Register where there, there is a campus group, a Christian campus group uh, at the University of Iowa, just you know, 45 minutes down the road, where they are being pressured by the school to change their standards on their faith, right? That they're seeing, you know, as a Christian organization, they're saying to be a leader in this organization, in this Christian organization, you have to subscribe to a statement of faith. And what the, the University of Iowa and other student-led groups are saying is, you know what, that, that is intolerant, that's, that's, uh, that's prejudice, that's, so they, they have to destroy that. And so we're even seeing this now in the Midwest where, you know, we're pretty slow to see these things. But even even in our context, we're seeing uh, where there are systemic um, and other society, societal compounds that are resisting and, and against Christianity. Um, and, and as you might imagine, facing this kind of hostility is not fun. It's not something that Christians wake up in the morning saying, I can't wait to be persecuted, right? Nobody says this, but there is actually evidence of grace in this, right? As Christians, there is, there's confidence that if we are indeed suffering on account of our faith, that is a testament to the fact that our faith is indeed genuine, that we're actually living out the faith that Jesus said to go and make disciples of. And so what we see here in the first century church, these people who are living all in for Jesus, who are being persecuted and sort of pushed out because of their faith, these people are not nominal Christians. They're not what we, we know as Christer Christians, right? The Christians that show, show up on Christmas and Easter. These are Christians who are living radically changed lives in light of what's been accomplished on Christmas and Easter, right? They realize that the day by day, moment by moment, life all of life is changed when Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And so with these new priorities, there are new values, there's new purpose. And these people started living all in for Jesus because Jesus had really gone all in for them. He lived the life they couldn't live. He died the death that we have deserved to die. And so they're responding to Jesus with life that, that exists to glorify Jesus. See, anyone who understands the gravity of what Jesus has done for them will have a changed life. See, there's new priorities, there's new values, there's new purpose when we encounter Jesus. And growing in grace is at the forefront of that. And the only way to grow in grace is in community and on mission. And so our lives as Christians look different. 
Now, what you'll, you'll realize that if you experience this yourself, the more you live all in for Jesus, the more dynamic your faith becomes, the more observable from a distance it is, the more hostility will increase in a hostile culture. Now, it's kind of like this. I'm an I'm a Oakland Raiders fan. I love pro football. I'm an Oakland Raiders fan, and for the last decade or so, the better part of the last decade, it's been a pretty, pretty sad event to be a Raiders fan. They've been pretty terrible for you know, a lot of years. And when they were really terrible, I sort of kept my head down. I didn't speak up about the Raiders because there wasn't really a lot to talk about. Uh, but over the last couple of years, things have been changing a little bit, right? We've got some key players in place. Um, it's, it's an exciting time. Well, it, it seemed like it was about to be an exciting time to be a Raiders fan. Uh, and so I started to get a little bit more vocal about it, you know, trying to become a Raiders evangelist, right? I was welcoming people onto the Raiders bandwagon because I was pretty sure that they were going to make their way to the, the postseason and become Super Bowl contenders. Uh, that didn't happen. And uh, what happened, as I began to speak up more and more about the Raiders, I, I found more and more playful hostility from my friends, right? I've got a lot of friends that aren't Raiders fans. They have their own teams. And so I would be getting text messages when the Raiders would lose. And they'd be like, ha, 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 sucks to be you. And I'd be like, get out of here. Or people at the door say, ah, how them Raiders, you know. And so there's hostility, playful hostility increased. See, people were giving me a hard time as I began to speak up about the Raiders. And all, it's all in fun, pretty harmless, um, and, you know, this was really pointless, long, overdrawn illustration here. But, but this is to, just to show that, that the more vocal, the more prominent, the more dynamic faith is, the more resistance you'll face. Just like the more vocal I became about the Raiders, the more hostility I faced from my friends. Um, but, and, and so what we're seeing here is that Christians in the first century, as they lived this dynamic life uh, in devotion to Jesus, they faced more and more Hostility. In fact, if you are living a dynamic life of faith in Jesus, genuine faith in Jesus, you will speak up about him. Your life will demonstrate what he's like, what he's done for you, but you will also speak up about him. But this also means that you're likely to face hostility in the midst of a culture that seems to have no place for Jesus. And as you might imagine... Uh, or experience firsthand as, as you live in that, right? You, 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 you're experiencing hostility. There's hurt and difficulty that comes along with that. It, it becomes quite exhausting, actually, right? In fact, for me, one of the most exhausting things to do is to get on social media because I feel like there's all, like constantly being bombarded with, with anti-Christian things. And I, I, maybe that's not what my friends are sitting out to do, but, but my worldview is different, and, and it feels exhausting. And it's not a, a physical tiredness, but it's an emotional and relational exhaustion. And I think that this is the most severe form of exhaustion, because finding rest from this isn't as simple as laying up on the couch, you know, catching up on your latest Netflix show. Uh, it can really cause a dilemma, right? How do you find emotional and relational rest or relief from this uh, environment? And if you can't figure out the answer to that question, what happens is your soul becomes depleted, right? It, you go from... Uh, exhausted to more exhausted to, to even more exhausted until you're at the point where something's got to change. 
And so when Christians in the first century came to this point, there were two false solutions, two solutions that were not viable for them that would often be, uh, they drift towards, right? The first option, false solution, was basically to, to give up on Christianity, right? To give in to the culture, for, forsake their faith, revert back to the cultural norm like they were living as non-Christians once again. And, and this idea, this way of living is to be driven by human, human flesh, by the passions and desires of the flesh. It's to live centrally according to your desires and not by the will of God. See, at worst, people who did this completely walked away from God. And at best, they, they watered down their faith till it became unrecognizable. Right, to the point where they, they had de-emphasized Jesus and the gospel. They sort of created a, a Christianity light. Um, a, 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 what do they call it? A designer religion. Something that fit, that was tailored to fit their own desires without putting themselves out. See, the problem with this, while it seemed easier and it sort of uh, bypassed the hostility and, and the tiredness that they faced... What it meant is that they compromised their faith, that no longer was the substance of their faith intact, but it became a faith that pushed Jesus out. It became a bogus faith. It became not Christianity at all. Now, the other solution was kind of to the other extreme. It wasn't to, to walk away from the faith, but to sort of double down on it in a way where they would isolate themselves from the culture in order to preserve orthodox doctrine and practice. They would cut themselves off from the culture entirely. And, and this is similar to the ideology of, of what the Amish have and what, what Benedictine communities have, where, the, where they sort of create their own enclave, a way detached from the, the mainstream culture. And the idea here was to create a subculture, one that could exist apart from the mainstream. And, and to do this, it seemed like it was a great idea in sort of preserving the culture that the gospel was meant to create, right? A culture devoted to godliness and brotherhood. But what happened is communities that did this would neglect a big part of their identity as missionaries, right? To be God's sent people, to engage with the community, to be a light in a dark world, and to show the watching world what God is like. And so in this way, they would fail to really live in their identity as Christians. And while these two paths are definitely paths of least resistance, Peter uh, dismisses both of these options because they aren't true to what God has in mind to accomplish in and through his people, which has been the same since the Old Testament back in Abraham, to bless his people in order to be a blessing to the world. See, what Peter suggests is that there is a third way to live as God's called and chosen people. Right? These are people who are called by the grace of God to live in community and on mission for the glory of God. And to live the way that God desires his people to live means that an alternate culture would be created. One that sort of goes alongside of the mainstream. It's distinctly different, right? There's a lot of, uh, there's a, a big contrast between the mainstream culture and this alternate culture that Christian community is meant to create. But there's still an engagement. There's still contact with the mainstream culture. And so what Peter does in his book here 
He spends the bulk of, of his time writing, explaining, and giving a picture uh, for these first century Christians to understand what this kind of community, this alternate culture, looks like. And so what he does, he starts with the view from, from outsiders looking in, right? Non-religious, non-Christian people looking in and seeing how they can see uh, the Christian community. And what, what Peter says is that they are to live um, live in a way that is honorable to all authority. He starts with, with the government. He says, honor those who are over you because God has placed them there. He says, honor your employers, your teachers, those who have been given um, authority in different social environments. He says, even brings it to the household, right? Even if your husband or your spouse is an unbeliever, there is still to be uh, an honor displayed towards them that is to be winsome, and so he says to live an honorable way, live your life honorably, bless when you are cursed, so that when people ask, why do you live this way, you can give an account for what you have experienced, the grace you've experienced in Christ. And so in this, this sense, the alternate culture is engaged, right? There, there, there's a, a, an outstretched arm to the mainstream culture. And then Peter turns a corner here in verses or in chapters four and five, and he's going to begin to explain what this alternate culture looks like from the inside, right? What it's like to be part of this Christian community. And, and, and this picture that he paints, it's an attractive, it's it's life-giving community. Um, it, it deviates from the mainstream culture's mantra that it's every man for himself, right? Uh, uh, the big dog is, is the champ, right? It deviates from that in the sense that this culture is to be for one another, that the church is to be a, a loving community. It's, it's supposed to be a community that's devoted to the group at large. And Peter, he, he's going to say, he starts actually back in um, chapter 4 by saying that, that the first thing that sort of deviates the Christian community from the mainstream culture is that, that Christians are devoted to living according to the will of God, right? It's no longer the, their own desires or human desires that drives them. It's, it's a craving, it's a desire to live according to God's ways. There will be a pursuit of holiness, a desire to walk with God, to be with God, to live life on God's terms, and, and verse 7 uh, of, our, of our passage today um, actually sort of wraps up what he says in, um, chap- or in verses 1 through 6. So if you want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Take a look here. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, start prepping and build your bunker. <laughs> no, he doesn't say that. No, he, he doesn't say that. He, he says the end of all things are at hand. He's not, he's not speaking chronologically here as if, if the apocalypse is tomorrow. He's speaking here theologically that we are in the last times, the last phase of God's plan of redemption is right now that Christ has come, he has died for our sins, that he has been resurrected, his spirit has been given to us, and now we are waiting for the time when Jesus will come back and bring with him in the fullness his kingdom. So he says, in light of this future reality, in light of, of what's guaranteed because of what Christ has done, he says, therefore, he says, the end of 
all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, Peter, what he's saying here is that we must be tethered to the certainty to be bought in to, to what God is will, he, he's already started, he's, he's begun, he's done all the work, to what God will finish in Christ's second coming. And to be tethered to that idea, to be hold fast to that hope. What that produces in us is sober-mindedness and self-control. He's saying to, to have your mind set on this reality means that you will think holy and live holy. Right, that you will be in, live in line with the will of God. Now, many people, when they hear this, they think, you know what, that's, that's a boring way to live, right? God never wants to do anything fun. It's like we're, you know, God's holy robots or something down here on earth. But, but that is a caricature of, of Satan. Because what, what the reality is to live according to God's will means that our life is filled with an abundant life and love. That there is something deep and, and profound and something so uh, desirable of, of our life lived according to God's ways. You see, and this is manifested in our prayer life. There's something about prayer that speaks to the life and the love that God offers. See, a lot of us tend to think of prayer as sort of this, this opportunity for me to go before God and ask him for all the things that I want, right? It's, it's a thing that, you know, we tend to do. And that's a good thing to do. In fact, Jesus tells us if we go to God and we ask, he'll, he'll listen to our requests, but there's a part of prayer that I think that we tend to forget, especially when we're thinking about what we want from God. And that, that piece of prayer is just to tap into the life-giving love that God offers. To tap into the relationship that God offers. Right? He, he's primarily, in the gospel, he's not offering us just forgiveness of sins and just you know, a life of righteousness. What he's offering us, the ultimate end of the gospel, is to be connected to God himself. And prayer is the thing that does that. And so it's by prayer we access this moment-by-moment life-giving love that God gives us, that we become vitally connected to God, who is the source of life and love. You see, and God desires that his culture would be a life-giving culture of love to be to be created here on earth right the church is supposed to show the watching world what the kingdom of god will be like it's supposed to point to heaven and there's a tendency here for the church when we're talking about love and what it looks like to be a life-giving loving community that we sort of theorize it we talk about it abstractly but Peter's aim here is to bring this down to, to concrete ideas here, a, a practical way for the church to live. And when you think about it, a loving culture, a loving community it is the context that we all desire to live in, right? Nobody, nobody comes from a, a community that's like, you know what, I love my friends because they tell me that I'm garbage every day. Like, no, you don't like friends like that. You don't, you don't like spending time with people that are constantly unloving toward you. And so the desire for our heart is to be in this context where we're experiencing a life-giving love. In fact, kids who come out of stable, loving homes will typically be more confident. They'll be more adaptable in life. 
That's because the most helpful context, the most helpful place to discover who you are, to understand your skills, your giftings, to understand what you're made for is the context of a loving, life-giving community. And so Christian community is meant to be a place where people can discover who they are, right? They understand their identity in Christ and to learn what it's like to live in that identity, to, to, have, to know what they were made for, the giftings that God has given them, the skills that they have and how to, to use them. And it's by growing in this community where these kids, where people, regardless of their age, they learn how to be a vital contributing member of that community working for the greater good. Now, in order for this sort of community to exist, right, to be a a loving, life-giving community, the love of this community cannot be flimsy, right? It cannot be flimsy. My son, um, he went out on, I don't know, maybe Christmas Day or the day after Christmas, took some of his Christmas money, went out and got this, like, toy clamper thing, you know, it's, you know, you squeeze it and it clamps, you know, it's cheap, made of plastic, super flimsy, uh, and by the time he got it home, played with it for a couple hours, you know, the the little grabber wasn't working anymore. You pick something up, it start to bend a little bit, right? That's how a lot of toys are made these days, just cheap, flimsy plastic. And I think in a lot of ways, the sort of love that, that the mainstream culture has is a lot like that flimsy plastic. It's not durable. It's not made to last. In fact, half of the marriages that take place, will end in divorce. Right? That's, that's sort of a cultural norm these days, that 50% of the marriages that, that are, happen will end in divorce sometime. And, and, and if that is the most intimate, the most loving context for our culture, and, and, and 50% of marriages fall apart, that says something about the caliber of love that's in, our, in our, the mainstream culture. It's just not durable. And so in order to have this community, this, this alternate culture that maintains a, a loving, life-giving community, there must be a durable love. Right? It's got to be a love that's based on more than emotions or the momentary opinions or likability of other people. And that's precisely what Peter calls us to in verse 8. He says, Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. See, Peter says, above all, love each other earnestly. He's saying, what he's saying here, the most important characteristic, the most important marker of this Christian community is that we love one another. And he speaks of the caliber of love. He says, love one another earnestly. Now this gives us a picture of the durability and the longevity, that this is a both strong and stable love, a love that can weather tough conditions. It doesn't wear out. It doesn't break down. A love that lasts, endures, presses through um, difficult times, a love that fortifies, that strengthens the more that it's expressed a love that protects, a love that builds up and not tears down. See, this is the caliber of love that is necessary for creating a life-giving and loving community. And what's encouraging about this verse, 
when you look at it. He says, Peter said, Peter's not rebuking them. He's not like, get your act together and start loving them. He says, no, keep on loving each other earnestly. See, that's, a, that's an encouraging thing. If I'm the church, if I'm part of the church that Peter's speaking to, that's, that's an encouraging thing, right? You're doing the right things. Keep on doing it. But that's not necessarily the case for all churches. In fact, if you were to go back and look at 1 Corinthians, right, that church was a mess. They were terrible at loving one another. And so for, for us as a church, we, we must ask ourselves, right, are, are we being a community that embodies this type of life-giving love? And if I'm honest with myself, I, I look at myself, right, before I assess the church, and I wonder, right, am I cultivating in my own life a culture that's life-giving and loving? And some days I'm not sure, honestly. Right? And, and if I'm like this, chances are the church that I lead is bound to, to veer with me. And so that church, I think that's a question that we need to ask ourselves. Are we this loving, life-giving community? And, and, and it'll probably vary from missional community to missional community, right? And so together, as you're sitting down with your MCC and, and going through your New Year's resolutions, I think one of the most important questions is, are we a loving, life-giving community? And if we're not, we need to, to move towards repentance Right? What's in the way? What's stopping us from living like that? And we need to, to, in faith, step out and set out on a journey to become this type of community. And so whether verse 8 is an encouragement or rebuke to you, it's important for us to know that this is the standard. This is what God's community, what God's church is meant to embody. But this isn't easy. It is not easy to love each other earnestly. And and the second part of verse 8 says why. He's suggesting here um, by saying that love covers a multitude of sin, that when you're living in community, when you're living in this community, though your intentions is to be loving and life-giving, you will sin against other people. That's the reality. You see, because the church is not a museum for saints. The church is a hospital for recovering sinners. Right? Whenever you get sinners together, guess what's going to happen? They're going to sin. And so when you're living in authentic community, you will sin against other people. You will be sinned against. But here is what marks the Christian community, a love that is durable, a love that is earnest enough to forgive when sinned against. A love that repents Right? You see how your sin grieves somebody else, and so you're willing to go to them and reconcile. Say, brother, I've sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? See, that's the type of love that's embodied within the Christian community. And this is different from the community at large. Right? The mainstream culture does not act this way. Right? If you sin against someone, it's like, oh, sorry, not sorry. Right? You were in my way. You, you work up justifications as to why you stepped on someone's toes, why you sinned against that person. And so the church is marked by this kind of love, a love that covers a multitude of sins. See, I'm not talking about a brotherly love that will save each other. I'm talking about a brotherly love that's an expression of the love that you've experienced that has saved you. See, the way that the church carries on in this love, the way that the church can even maintain this love, is to be rooted in the earnest love that Jesus has freely given us. 
that while we were sinning against him, while we were enemies of God, he loved you. There was never a point in Jesus' life when you were theoretically, not even theoretically, but figuratively spitting in his face, right? Sinning against him, rebelling against God, saying, no, thank you. But Jesus, his love was always bent to you, even when you sinned against him. See, in Jesus, Jesus' earnest love covers us. He covers our sin. And, I, and I, I'm not talking like a sort of, of covering where he sort of conceals it, sweeps it under the rug, hides it, pretends like it doesn't exist. That's not the type of love that Jesus has, and that's not the type of love that we, we need to pretend in community that everybody's perfect little saints. That's not what Jesus is talking about when he says, my love is covering you. What Jesus is saying is that uh, he's functioning as a shield. He says, yep, you are that bad. You are sinning against me. You're sinning against your brother or your sister. That you are plagued with sinful thoughts and sinful actions, but this is where Jesus functions as a shield to you, where he covers you, where he gets in between you, the sinner, and the holy wrath of God, that he is the one that takes the wrath of God that we deserve. And then he covers us with his righteousness so that when God looks at us we are covered in a sense that we're protected from the wrath of God but we're covered in Christ's righteousness he looks at us and he sees the perfect life of Christ covering us so we're no longer enemies of God we're brought into God's family as adopted sons and daughters that's what Peter's talking about when he says it's by God's mercy that you've been born again to a living hope See, what Jesus does when he covers us, he loves us at our worst and brings us to our best. And so it's in response to this, the love of Christ being poured out on us, that we respond with love toward God, right? We, we love, become not enemies, but lovers of God. We love him. We have, a, we have the spirit in us that cries out from us, Abba, Father. Right? That's, that's language of endearment. Father, Daddy. But in loving God, we also begin to love one another. This is why the church must be unapologetically committed to the gospel of Christ. This is the love. This is our example. This is what brings us in. This is what sustains our love. And so if we were to take Jesus out of the equation, the church begins to diminish. The quality, the caliber of the love of Christian community vanishes. But when we put Christ's love in full view, when we remember it, when we fight to believe it, that's when a loving, life-giving culture is created. See, it was the will of God to send Jesus to earth for us, to die, to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserve, so that we could live in that love. And as we live in that love, we tangibly demonstrate what God is like, what God's love is like to the watching world. And, and so the next couple verses, verses 9 and 10, are so important for the church, especially when we're talking about being a, a, a community that is creating a culture, an alternative culture. It, and so Peter gets pretty practical here. And so this, the next part of this sermon here is, is, is practical stuff, right? What Things that you can go home and start to do. So let's take a, a look at verse 9. 
He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, when we think about hospitality, we're usually thinking about hosting people in our homes, right? Cooking up a nice meal, uh, offering enjoyable conversation, making people feel welcome and at home. Um, And that is absolutely part of biblical hospitality, right? We can trace that all the way back to the Old Testament. This is sort of the culture that God created by his love through his people. And so we should, as Christians, be having our, our unbelieving friends and neighbors and coworkers over, inviting them into our space, opening up our lives to them, inviting them in. But Peter is not just saying, you know what, you guys, you just need to have a ton of dinner parties. <laughs> that's, that's not only what he's saying. That's actually more of a jumping off point. See, the, the kind of hospitality here that, that Peter is envisioning is, is making space for others in your life, right? Ensuring them, inviting them in, making sure they know that they belong as part of your life. It means creating space for people, especially, especially your church family. And so this means as Christians, there's, there's a reprioritization that happens when we come to experience the love of God that changes all of our priorities before we came to know the love of God. And one of the things that dramatically changes is the value we place on Christian community, right? We don't just show up on Sunday mornings, but we make Christian community a way of living. We're in missional communities together, having family meals together, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday nights, whenever your missional community gets together. It means that beyond that, we're inviting our our church family into our homes, into our lives. We're we're recreating together. We're we're sharing space. We're, We're working on house projects together. We're creating space in our lives for each other. Now the buzz phrase that we would associate with this concept is doing life on life together. Right? We talk about having play dates with, with our kids, vacation together, living in close proximity, um, knowing each other's stories, watching our kids grow up together, doing our hobbies together. And this is really quite a big part of our identities and rhythms at Sacred City, right? That we, if we are saved as a family, we are to live as a family, right? If we're all individually adopted into God's family as brothers or as, as children of God, that makes us brothers and sisters. And so what does it look like to live in that identity as family, right? We live as family. We celebrate together. We, we, we go to each other's birthday parties. We, we do things together. All these things that we, we start acting as a family, but a lot of times we can talk the talk, right? We can post, we can post stuff up on our, our website and our Facebook page about how we do life on life together, but we fail to walk the walk. And I am guilty of this probably more than anybody in our church. Uh, I might blame it on being an introvert. My wife is very extroverted, and she stays at home with her boys, and so... For her, having people over in our space is like, you know, euphoria for her. I don't get it. But as an introvert, she says, hey, we're having these people over. This is the noise that I make. And it's not because I don't like the people that we're inviting over. That's not the case at all. It's, it's because it interferes with how I want to do my life. Right? It cuts in to how I want to spend my time, how I want to, you know, there's something, I just want to sit down and watch TV. 
But that, to do that diminishes, is an inaccurate portrayal of the kind of love that the Christian community is supposed to have toward one another. And I tend to do exactly what Peter says not to do. He says to be hospitable to one another without grumbling. And that ah, noise that I make, that is grumbling. (laughs) See, at the root of this issue is a preoccupation with myself, a self-love that prohibits me from loving the people in my church family. And since we were created by relationship, for relationship with God and with others, this is a high priority on God's list for the Christian community. That if you're not being hospitable, if you're not making space for others, you're missing out on, on a big piece of what you have been saved for. And to live a life without community, without opening your life up, without being hospitable and creating space for others means that you're living a diminished life. And so Peter uses verse 10 to flow right into the best ways that, to make fe- people feel like they belong. He says the best way to do this is to, to serve other people. Take a look at verse 10. He says, as each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, you know what? I don't, I don't have a gift, right? I can't sing, I can't preach, I can't teach, I don't know. But Peter says everyone has a gift, right? Everyone is gifted by God, and it's varied. There is a difference between my giftings and someone else's in my missional community. It does not mean that somebody's giftings are more important or more vital for a Christian community. They're all necessary for the body to function. In fact, Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, he says that, that the body of Christ, that the church is like the body itself, that each member has a unique thing to offer, right? My hand cannot do what my feet do. My nose can't do what my ears do. And so it's essential that all of the different gifts, all of the different capabilities are offered to the body. Now, let me just quickly here, fly over. I'm wrapping up here. Let me just name a few gifts that might not be on your radar. Because if you're thinking, you know what, I'm not gifted, I don't know what to do, I can't sing, whatever. Here are some gifts that you may not realize are, are really spiritual gifts. Encouragement, wisdom, teaching, leadership, giving, administration, Mercy, service, creativity, evangelism, discernment, hospitality. Those are, are gifts. You look at them and like, ah, oh, there's nothing spiritual about those things. Uh-uh. The Spirit has poured out upon you these gifts that are essential for the building up of the church. And if these gifts are not present within the body, the, the body of Christ, the church, flops And Peter basically lumps these gifts into two categories here as he continues in verse 11. He says there's there's the categories of speaking and of doing. Speaking and of doing, right? He says um, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. 
See, God gives the church gifts. But there ought to be no confusion about where these gifts come from. He says, be stewards of God's varied grace. God is the one who pours out these gifts. This isn't man-made gifts. This isn't something that you were just, you know, you developed on your own. These are gifts as a grace of God, and they are to be used for God. They come directly from God, and so he reiterates, whoever speaks, speak as if you're speaking God's words, because if you're speaking on account of God, you're speaking his word. Whoever serves, serve in God's strength. Don't serve on your own. And this could be a whole different sermon series right here. What's it look like to be dependent upon God's strength? That's a big mystery, I think, for a lot of us. But when you serve, do it not in your own strength, but with the strength that God supplies. See, the gifts of the church come from God, are powered by God, so they can be for God. That's what he goes on with on the second part of verse 11. He says, um, whoever whoever serves, whoever, whoever speaks, do it in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. See, there is a wrong way to serve. Right, we, we, we mentioned it today in our confession of sin, right? Well, that we waste, that we squander our gifts. And this doesn't just mean that we don't use them. Right? That is a way, if, if you're in community and not using your gifts, you're wasting, you're squandering the gifts that God has given you. But another way that we waste and squander our gifts is, is, is expending them to the wrong end. Right? We use them for self-glorification, to prop myself up, to, make, to use them as a mechanism to make me feel valuable, that I offer something. See, when we use gifts to establish ourselves, to, to make ourselves look good or to be recognized, whether that's singing or being hospitable, being a good host or, or viewed as being wise, you're confused about what your gifts are all about. It's not about you, right? Nobody here is gifted for you. I'm not up here preaching and teaching because this makes me feel good, right? This isn't, this isn't something that God has given me to, to sort of promote myself. This is every gift, regardless of what it is, from the most public to the most private, is given to glorify God. See, if you understand where your gifts come from and how they're being powered, right? These are gifts from God by God's power, then you will understand that they're ultimately about God's glory, right? That's, that's Peter's doxology. That's how he ends this section here. He says, to him, to Jesus, be the glory and dominion forever and ever. He's not saying to, Jesus, or to, to the church, to the preachers, to the really hospitable people, to the wise people. Be, no, no, no. He's saying to Jesus, be the glory and dominion forever. Now, why is that? Here's, here's, as I wrap this up, there is no one in this, in the history of mankind that is more hospitable or gifted than Jesus. Right? Jesus perfectly embodied every single one of these spiritual gifts. There was no one more hospitable, right? Just think of Jesus and his ministry, right? Who else would say, what other rabbi or, or religious teacher would say, let, let the kids come to me? Right, what other religious teacher would say, you know, I've got time for the lepers and the sick and, and the demoniacs? 
Jesus did. Jesus made space in his life. He's the most hospitable person this world has ever met. And while Jesus in his ministry makes space for people in his life, Jesus today is still making space for people in God's kingdom. By the good news of the gospel, as the Spirit is at work, Jesus is bringing people into God's family. And right now, when, when he left the disciples, when he ascended in heaven, he said, I'm, I'm going somewhere. I'm going to prepare, prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you, a place where you'll belong for eternity. That's what Jesus did. And so using all of his gifts, Jesus expended them to their fullest, relying on the power of God to do everything. He said, everything that I speak, everything that I do isn't from me, but it's from God. And Jesus expended every single resource he had to make space for you so that you would know what it's like to be in a loving, life-giving community. One that right now on this side of eternity is imperfect in the church, but one day will be glorious, will be perfect as we are in the presence of God. Right, one day, the day where prayer is no longer necessary. Do you know that? Like in the new heavens, new earth, we don't need to pray because we're there with God face to face. That's the sort of access, that's the sort of culture, that, that's the sort of community that Jesus is creating in his people today and it's pointing forward to the glorious future. And this table here, this is a sign of the lengths that Jesus went to, that he shed his own blood, that he broke his body for us and so by his wounds we would be healed, by his wounds we would be grafted into God's family that we would belong, that this meal, this is the meal that the church gathers around. Friends, the people that we're on mission to, yes, we should be wanting them to, to come into our household. Yes, we should be wanting to share time and space with them. But ultimately, the space that we're creating for them by living on mission, by, by sharing the gospel, by sharing our faith and our life with these people is to lead them to the, to the table right here so that they could take part in what God has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the work that Christ has done to bring us into his family, that we are no longer orphans, no longer enemies, no longer foreigners, but we are family. So God, we ask that your spirit would help us right, in the identity of family that you've given us. Would you help us to live as family? Would you make us a hospitable people? Would you make us a people who liberally expend our giftings and our resources to build up the body, to bless one another in word and in deed? And Father, in all of these things, in every single piece of energy that's expended, would you be glorified? For your glory and for our good, in Christ's name we pray, amen.